Good morning. I want to try to finish up today this uh, uh, discussion we've been having on the man of sin, Antichrist, the beast out of the sea. And we're in Revelation chapter 13, so I'd like to get through the first eight verses, or the first ten verses, that actually deal with the beast out of the sea. And then we'll save the beast out of the earth for when I return, Lord willing, the summer. So give you some stuff to chew on, and I'm sure the elders will have some good teaching for you while I'm away. This teaching is very heavy. The book of Revelation is deep and heavy, but it says, Blessed is the man who hears and reads and understands the things written in this book. Several times it said, He that has an ear, let him hear. In fact, it says it here in these verses in chapter 13. So this is written to the individual Christian. There's an individual application if you have a hear, ear, you need to hear. So it's important. I don't know why this book is neglected. I don't know why the messages to the seven churches, which are more appropriate and more of what we need as the church in these dark days than almost anything else in the New Testament, yet it's neglected. Blessed is he that has an ear, and if he has an ear, let him hear. Turn to Isaiah chapter 10. There's one final quality or one final characteristic of Antichrist that's worth noting, this horrible figure we've talked about. We've talked about his first appearance, his many names, allusions to him in the Psalms as relates to the remnant of Israel during the tribulation. We've talked about how he must be of the stock of Abraham, a Jew, how he's been here on earth once before in the person and work of Judas Iscariot what must happen before He is revealed. And then there's one more thing I want to emphasize concerning Him. He's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 10. Turn to verse 5. O Assyrian! We've mentioned this as a name for Antichrist. O Assyrian! The rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. Verse 6. I will send Him against a hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. I think it's worth noting that Antichrist is the rod of God's anger. He is judgment from the hand of God upon the wicked Gentile heathen who have rejected God and upon the people of Israel who have rejected their Messiah. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, the Bible tells Israel that God would send false prophets among them, and that this is how they would know who a false prophet is. A true prophet of the Lord, everything he prophesies comes true. 100% success rate. But a false prophet speaks things that don't come true, and he entices people to turn away from the clear revelation of God. And God told Israel that He would allow this to happen to test them, to prove whether or not their heart was really with Him. And in that sense, Antichrist is the rod of God's anger against both the Gentiles and the Jews. If you look at verse um, 15, it says that He is the axe in God's hand. Now, like every one of these axes in God's hands throughout history that were used as judgment 
against Israel, the axe went too far. The axe boasts in himself and not the one that hews him. This was the problem with Babylon. They were raised up by God to bring judgment upon Israel and they went too far. And God punished them as well. That's what the book of Habakkuk deals with in the Old Testament. Okay? Verses 12 through 15. Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord has performed His whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria. This is what places this prophecy in the last days. This is how we know it's ultimately fulfilled in Antichrist. There was a shadow fulfillment in the nation of Assyria that was coming up against the southern kingdom of Judah in the days of Hezekiah, the kingdom of Assyria that carried away the northern kingdom captive. But this is in the day uh, when God has performed His whole work upon Mount Zion. That's when He returns as Messiah. I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. Well, if this is God's instrument, why would God punish him? If God's using him as an instrument of his anger, why would God punish him? How can God find fault? This is the question Paul deals with in Romans 9. Why? Verse 13, For he saith, I want you to pay attention here, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man, and my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathereth eggs that are left, and I gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or peeped. I, 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 I. I want you to remember that. Because Antichrist has the name of blasphemy upon his head. He requires men to receive a mark. That mark is the number of a man. This will shed light on that later. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up, or as if the staff should lift it up as if it were no wood? Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among His Fat one's leanness, and under his glory he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. And it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. Antichrist is the rod of God's anger, but he's also the object of God's anger when he takes the glory that belongs to God and puts it upon himself. Remember in Revelation 6-2, the first seal is the peaceful rise of Antichrist. He has a bow but no arrows. He comes in peace. He comes with flatteries and is given power. It's not the white horseman that comes on the scene. It's the white horse rider brought on the scene by the white horse. It's not the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's the four horses that are God's instruments. They bring Him in. Power is given to Him. God, God, God. God's behind it all. All of these things are purposed. When the wicked are blinded and perished, it's His decision that their vision is blurred. If you have a problem with that, worship God and give glory to Him for His judgments. It's your only option. Shall the pot say to the potter, why have you made me thus? It's an interesting question. God, God, God. There's an interesting statement here 
in this book by Arthur Pink on Antichrist that's worth reading in terms of this element. It is because men received not the love of God's truth, He shall send them strong delusion that they should believe the devil's lie. That's out of 2 Thessalonians 2. It is because men had pleasure in unrighteousness, they shall be deceived by the lawless one. Judgment from God. It is because Israel refused that blessed one who came in his father's name that they shall receive the one who comes in his own name. This is why the Antichrist will for a season be suffered to prosper and apparently to defy God with impunity. But when God has used him to perform his own pleasure, then shall he empty upon his kingdom and upon his subject the vials of his wrath Just as God has set the bounds of the sea, saying, Thus far shalt thou go and no further, so has He fixed the limits to which He will allow the Antichrist to go. And when that limit is reached, the son of perdition will find himself as helpless to pass beyond what God has decreed as a worm would be beneath the foot of an elephant. This will be made evident. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8-12 sheds a little more light on this. Um, talks about, this is what this author just referred to, that once the restrainer is taken out of the way, the Holy Spirit and the church, then shall that wicked, verse 8, be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of His mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of His coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. It's power and signs and lying wonders that will cause people to wonder after the beast and to worship him. Not all power, signs, and lying wonders or wonders or miracles are from God. If you judge truth based on the experience or the encounter of a miracle, you're setting yourself up to be deceived. Miracles are proved to be true when they give Glory to Jesus Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit always points to Christ. That's His witness. He'll testify of Christ, the Comforter. Not back upon Himself or upon people. And a sign is from God if it confirms and affirms the Word of God. And brings people to repentance. Short of that, it's a lying wonder. And these things are what will characterize Antichrist ministry. And with all deceivableness, deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, why? Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God, not Satan, not Antichrist himself, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Delusion, that's a fog. It's a fog over your face. You can't discern right from wrong. If you can't see that in our society today, you're already blind. That fog's already here. That mist is already rising from the ground. Strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Mankind, the heathen, they've pronounced their own judgment. We've pronounced our own judgment in this country and God's going to give it to us. This is God's reply to man's evolution. America has rejected God's lamb. He will give them a beast to rule over them. 
You insist that we have our origin in the beast of the field. We insist that man's origin is from apes. A bestial origin. And so a beast will lead us. Lead this generation into delusion and perdition. Will the rise of Antichrist be judgment upon us? Will it be judgment on you? I'm going to answer these questions at the end of the message, but let's look at the text itself. Revelation 13. This is the sixth major character of the tribulation. This is in the midst of this parenthesis that began back in chapter 12, emphasizing the war between the dragon, Satan, and the sun-clothed woman, which is Israel. And Antichrist, the beast out of the sea, he is the commander-in-chief in Satan's onslaught. His ruthless reprisal against Israel and against the earth after he's kicked out of heaven. The sixth of seven major characters. We've got the woman Israel, the dragon Satan, the man-child Messiah, the archangel Michael who fights on behalf of Israel, the remnant or the tribulation saints. Now we have Antichrist. And number seven will be the false prophet. John says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard. His feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and his authority. If you have your outline, these first two verses, these are the attributes of Antichrist. We've already seen these in our character sketch of him. These agree with what's been revealed about him elsewhere. What are his attributes? He has ten horns. We've talked about how this is a reference to the revived and revised Roman Empire, the last form of worldwide government, a ten-nation federation. These are the ten toes of Daniel's image that appeared to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. These are the ten horns of the fourth Gentile kingdom that Daniel also sees come up out of the sea. In, Daniel, in, in Revelation 17, these are the ten horns of the scarlet beast. And we also see those ten horns on the dragon. Verse 3 of chapter 12. What's interesting though is in chapter 12, the dragon has seven heads and ten horns. But on the dragon, it's the heads that are crowned. Not the horns. On the beast, seven heads and ten horns. But it's the horns that are crowned. Okay? Antichrist rules over the last Gentile kingdom that arises to destroy Israel. Satan, behind all of it, his crowns are on the seven heads. Remember the seven heads stand for the seven world kingdoms that have arisen in world history to try to destroy Israel while in the land. Antichrist rules over the, the, uh, the last form, which is the ten horns. That's why the crowns are on his horns. In fact, he's actually the eighth himself because he uses that ten-nation federation to receive power and then they give their authority to him. But behind it all, Satan has controlled. Antichrist is the incarnation of Satan just like Christ is the incarnation of God. He's got seven heads just like the dragon. 
If you go back to verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 3 of chapter 12, there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. Remember, Daniel gives us a prophecy in chapter 7 of four Gentile kingdoms that would arise from his day to the end of the earth as instruments of persecution against Israel. But there were two that were before Daniel's day. We talked about that. Egypt, Assyria. Then in Daniel's four beasts, you have Babylon, which was contemporaneous Daniel. Persia, Greece, and Rome. Okay? And then you have the last form of the Roman Empire, the Ten Nation Federation. That gives us the seven heads of the beast. Revelation 17.9 tells us, well actually in chapter 17, verse 10 and 11, we're told these seven heads are seven kings. John says, or John's told five are fallen, sixth is, and the seventh is yet to come. Where John was living in the days of Rome, the Roman is the sixth, And this last form of the Roman Empire is the seventh. But in chapter 17, verse 9, we're also told that these seven heads are seven mountains upon which the whore sits. We're going to talk about that more because that whore is man-made religion as personified in the ecumenical movement of today, as personified in the history of the Roman Catholic Church. And she sits upon these seven mountains. Okay? These seven heads are the instruments whereby she's propped up. And she's propped up to usher in Antichrist. And then these seven heads or these, these uh, Antichrist himself turn upon her. They use her false religion to gain power. And then the hand that feeds gets bitten off. But we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 17. But there's a dual meaning there in classic ultimate prophecy um, uh, presentation. But the beast and the dragon are connected here. Seven heads, seven kingdoms that tried to eradicate Israel while in the land. Nazi Germany's not one of them. Nazi Germany was used by God to bring Israel back to the land. Yes, it was a terrible holocaust. But that was used to bring about the creation of a modern state of Israel. Without the holocaust, that never would have happened. It's a different situation. These kingdoms attempted to eradicate the nation of Israel while she was in the land. Egypt brought her down out of the land and then tried to destroy her when God was building her. Assyria carried captive half of them in the northern kingdom out of the land, tried to besiege Judah. Babylon carried them captive. Medo-Persia tried to destroy them with Haman. The Greeks constantly back and forth, war in the land. The Romans, A.D. 70, And then this will repeat itself with the revived Roman Empire that Daniel sees as one beast and John divides into two horns or two heads. It says here that upon these heads, which represent these efforts by Satan using Gentile world kingdoms to eradicate Israel, is the name of blasphemy. Well... Anti-Semitism, hatred of Israel, is blasphemy. In my opinion, if you believe that the church has replaced Israel and God is finished with His people, then you're a blasphemer, in my opinion. I don't care if you go preach the gospel on the streets. You're blaspheming God. You need to repent. Hatred of the church is blasphemy. 
You claim to be saved, but you don't want to be a part of a local church and you believe all the church is corrupt. You're just going to worship God in your own time. That's blasphemy. Hebrews 10 says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, especially as the days of these things approach. You don't love Jesus and hate His bride. You don't love Christ and hate His wife, His adulterous wife, even though she's adulterous. You don't do these things. These things are blasphemy. But what is the ultimate name of blasphemy? It's one letter. That's the name of blasphemy. One letter. Look at Revelation 13, 18. We won't get here till later when we talk about the false prophet. It's talking about the mark that people are required to have in their right hand and in their foreheads, King James. Not on their right hand or on their foreheads, modern versions. In. Big difference. Verse 18, here is wisdom. To him that has understanding, count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is 603 score and 6. We'll talk more about that later, but the name of blasphemy is the name of a man. It's the word I. I, right there in Isaiah. I've done this. Me, my, I. That's the name of blasphemy. The name of blasphemy is revealed today in the church when we elevate love for our fellow man over love for God. When you deny your Maker, you are wicked beyond imagination. I don't care how many homeless people you feed. You've denied the one that made you and you have the name of blasphemy written on your head. You may as well. I, me, my, man. That's the name of blasphemy. And that's what the kingdom of Antichrist is all about. That's what the spirit of Antichrist is all about. You know you have the spirit of Antichrist in a ministry when the attention is on the man and not on the Christ of the man. You know you have the spirit of Antichrist in a ministry when you look and see who the man associates with. I don't care what you preach behind the pulpit, or what you claim to believe, you can be guilty by association. So if you've got people employed in your ministry who are making campaign contributions to wicked people, then you're guilty by association. I don't care what you preach. The name of blasphemy is written on your ministry. I don't care what you preach. Repent. Paul says to abstain from even the appearance of evil. Don't associate with evil. The name of blasphemy is the name of a man. It is I, 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 I. Just like the king of Assyria boasts there in Isaiah 10. Man-centered ministry. We also have seen that this is the way of Balaam. This is the error, this is the, the way of Cain, the error of Balaam that Jude talks about. This is the problem or the essence of the Laodicean church. What does Laodicea mean in Greek? Rights of the people. See, it's that man-centered ministry that will foreshadow and usher in the rise of Antichrist. And His name will openly wear the name of blasphemy. People will boast in their own selves. You know, people have boasted in their hearts long, long time. But there's coming a day when what's been whispered in the closets is openly proclaimed. The name of blasphemy, the number of a man, I, 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 I. 
Jesus summed up the law in two great commandments, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Very important. We ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. But you can't love your neighbor in the way God desires you to do it unless you love Him first. Love a fellow man without love of God is the name of blasphemy. It's the spirit of Antichrist. You think because you go feed some homeless on the street or raise some awareness about sex trafficking, but God forbid you ever do anything about it. That's 99% of these so-called ministries that think they're doing something about sex trafficking because they're raising awareness. God forbid they'd actually sacrifice life and limb to help some of these women. That's blasphemous. You don't care about your neighbor. You're using it to draw attention to yourself. And you've denied the one that made you. says that uh, he comes out of the sea. John saw the beast rise up out of the sea. This is an allusion back to Daniel's vision. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. In the prophet Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It's interpreted as the four Gentile world kingdoms that would arise from his point forward to the end of time. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Nebuchadnezzar saw these as precious metals on a great image. In Daniel chapter 7, God reveals the same thing to Daniel, but what man, what Nebuchadnezzar sees as a precious metal, a man-made kingdom, God reveals to Daniel as hideous beast. I think about what was written in the Gospels, what is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the eyes of God. What man sees as gold and silver and brass and iron, God sees as hideousness, hideous beast. And in Daniel chapter 7, it says in verse 1, In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, this is before the events in chapter 5. Okay? The first six chapters of Daniel are historical. The last uh, six chapters are prophetic. So this actually happens chronologically before Belshazzar's feast. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed, and then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. Daniel in a vision saw beasts rise out of the sea that he would learn stood for Gentile world kingdoms that would arise and be used of God. John stands on the, the, the sand of the sea and sees a beast rise up out of the sea. Daniel had a dream. John was actually there. John was actually there. It was no dream. And if you go on and you read... Daniel's prophecy, I won't do it now, you'll see that what John sees here in chapter 13 is Daniel's fourth beast. God shows Daniel four beasts. God shows John the fourth of Daniel's four beasts. It's the same thing. The sea imagery stands for the world populace, the chaotic, chaotic masses of the world, unorganized, perishing, striving. The mass of mankind. How do I know this? Turn to Matthew 13. Jesus tells a parable when He's telling His parables in chapter 13 concerning the kingdom of heaven. There's several of them there. In verse 47, He says again, 
the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew it to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from the just, shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Wow, Jesus preached about hell. Wailing and gnashing of teeth. Casting people into hell. Yes, Jesus, humble Jesus, meek and mild, preached about hell. It's mentioned many more times in the Sermon on the Mount than heaven. Some people need to get their facts straight and be reminded of who Jesus is actually revealed to be. Not what they've created in their own mind, that idol to serve their own lust and pleasures. But this parable here shows us that the net is the gospel. Those that cast it, we know are fishers of men, what Jesus said His followers would be. I mean, He told them they'd make them fishers of men. The sea is the world population. Guys, this is evangelism. Evangelism is casting the net and drawing in. And what's good and what's bad will be revealed. It's not our problem. It's the angel's problem to separate it out, given a commandment by God. That's evangelism. Cast the net and draw whatever comes in. Don't change the message. We don't got to come up with another tool. Use the net. But the, the sea here is the masses of humanity. It's the people of this world that give rise to the beast. It's the people that give rise to Him. But that's a good image of evangelism there, just casting a net and drawing in. God will separate the wicked from the just. Don't go out and try to cut down the tares. That's not our job. We might cut down the wheat. Let them both grow together. It's not our problem. Preach the gospel. Cast a net. We see in verse 2 of chapter 13 that this beast out of the sea is a composite beast. It's a composite beast. It's actually a combo of Daniel's first three beasts from chapter 7. It's a combo of the Gentile three, the first three Gentile world kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. Again, this shows that Revelation is tied to Daniel. The books of the Bible are consistent in their revelation. They do not contradict one another like the surahs of the Quran. Consistent revelation. In chapter 7, verse 7, Daniel saw a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. In Revelation 13, 2, it says that he was likened to a leopard, had the feet of a bear, and the mouth of a lion. Daniel's first beast was a lion that was given the heart of a man. His second beast was a bear raised up on both sides with three ribs in his mouth. And his third beast for Greece was a leopard with four heads. So Antichrist is a combination of the first three world kingdoms that Daniel says is dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. He doesn't even know what to call it. So Antichrist will have the swiftness, the, white, the lightning quick overthrow and conquering of Greece, the leopard, Daniel's third beast. Greece over, uh, overthrew the Persians, in 331 B.C., and it was a rapid overthrow, swift. The campaigns of Alexander the Great are unmatched even today in their swiftness. He was terribly outnumbered, but overthrew the Persian army and conquered a huge piece of territory. And he died when I think he was 31 years old. 
The feet of a bear. This is the ferocity and the dominion of the Medo-Persian Empire that overthrew the Babylonians in 536 when they snuck into... They rerouted the Euphrates River during Belshazzar's feast and snuck up under the city and overthrew Babylon, the mightiest kingdom in world history to date. So we've got the swiftness and the quick lightning overthrow of the Greeks, the ferocity and the dominion of Medo-Persia. And then it says he has the mouth of a lion. This is the absolute authority of Babylon. The lion is the king of the beast. No one even matches authority in the jungle. Antichrist will have that same absolute authority that Nebuchadnezzar had when he ruled his kingdom. So much of it that if you didn't bow down to this image, you got cast into the fire. No question. Absolute authority. But here's the interesting thing. Babylon uh, conquered Egypt and Assyria in 605 B.C. at the Battle of Carchemish. And on his way back, Nebuchadnezzar took his first captives from uh, the kingdom of Judah. But... Daniel's first beast is a lion, but he's made to stand on his feet and he's given the heart of a man. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. He retained his authority, but he became humane at the end of his reign and he recognized the God of Daniel as the God of creation. His, he's humane. Antichrist will have that authority, but not that humaneness that came with Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, it'll be flip-sided. Nebuchadnezzar was ruthless and became humane. Antichrist will use this pseudo-love and treaty for the Jews to become ruthless. It's backwards where the Jews are concerned. But we have a combo beast that's going to have characteristics of all the Gentile world kingdoms. Something unmatched. That's why Daniel called it terrible and dreadful. Great iron teeth that stamped in pieces. That Roman Empire has three forms. The Roman Empire that seemed to pass from existence. The ten nation is the second stage. And then Antichrist as the head. So a composite beast. This agrees with the revelation in Daniel. What's written here is nothing new. The New Testament isn't something different than the old. It confirms the old. It agrees with it. It's consistent. It says that this composite beast will get his power, his seat, and his great authority directly from the dragon. The dragon is the, I mean, uh, the beast is the dragon incarnate. Just as Judas Iscariot was Satan incarnate. It says Satan entered into him. Now, if Satan is bound currently, if he was bound at the cross and we're living in the millennium and the church is the new Israel and we're already the gospel is the golden age, if Satan's bound and has no authority, then this verse makes no sense. Obviously, he has authority. He's the God of this world. He's the prince of the power of this air in this present dispensation. If he had no authority to offer Jesus when he tempted him in the wilderness... He took him up in a, very, in a place and showed him all the, the kingdoms of the world and offered him to Christ if you'll just bow before me. If he didn't have the authority to do that, then that was no temptation. It was just a circus, just a PR stunt. But Christ was tempted because Satan's been given that authority. And he gives that authority after being kicked out of heaven, right, pours it right into the beast. The beast is his superman. So we've got his attributes there in the first two verses. Look at verse 3. 
And I saw one of the heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. There's an event that causes people. Oh, they're going to love him. They're going to vote for him. They're going to follow him. But there's something that causes them to actually worship him. When he sets himself up as God and goes after the Jews, the Jews aren't going to like it. They're going to have the scales removed from their eyes. They're going to recognize that he's not the Messiah, but the world's going to love it. They're going to worship him. What is this event? It says his head is wounded, as it were, to death, and then it was healed. This is what I believe is Antichrist's pseudo-resurrection. Not his resurrection, but his pseudo-resurrection. And again, there's a dual meaning here. Typical of Old Testament prophecy. One of the heads. These heads, as I've said, are the Gentile world empires that sought to extinguish Israel in the land. One of these heads seems to die, but then it's resurrected. Fragments of the Roman Empire have endured in European modern nation states, and these were later transplanted to American shores. So fragments of Rome exist today. America is an example of that. The Roman Empire became the nation states of Europe, France, England, Germany, these major nation states, and then the people of those nation states were transplanted to these shores. So even America is the remnant of the Roman Empire and its Western civilization. These things have endured, but the imperial form of government ceased politically. The, the imperial authority possessed by the Caesars ceased. It died. Politically. Though all throughout history it's been latent. It's lied there dormant in the popes. The popes took the political power of the Caesars and put it upon the church. But since the days of the church, that religious power embraced by the popes hasn't been a political power to control the whole world. Here, we have the resurrection of the imperial Roman government in which Antichrist resumes or takes back the authority of the Caesars. The Caesars had absolute authority. And that part of Rome seems to have died. It says, as it were, wounded to death. And then it's a wonder that the world gets another Caesar. Absolute authority. The government of the Caesars, the imperial form of government, is resurrected. And the world wonders. I think about, I don't know if any of you are into the Star Wars saga. It's just a fantasy story. But in episode 3, when the Galactic Senate votes absolute authority to the emperor to control this so-called rebellion of the Jedi or whatever... There's a comment made uh, when everybody's applauding as they award absolute authority and readily give up their freedoms. There's a comment made by someone in the crowd that says, so this is how liberty dies, with thunderous applause. And that's exactly what will happen in this world. Caesar will return and people will readily give up their liberty for security. Is that any wonder? Do we not see that happening all around us today? People are going to give up their liberty. For supposed security. They'll, they'll give it up with applause. 
The very thing that Khrushchev himself promised would happen to this country one day. We won't have to go to war with you to bring communism and a dictatorship to your country. You'll bring it to yourself. You'll invite it in yourself. He supposedly got saved and right with the Lord before he died. An interesting testimony I've heard. People will readily give up their freedoms and liberty for the iron fist of a Roman Caesar and his promises of security. So that's obviously the more general meaning of what's happening here. A world kingdom arises, it dies, it resurrects. Imperial Roman authority. But chapter 13, a little bit later, says there's also a specific meaning here in regard to the person of Antichrist himself. The government, form of government resurrects, but the man himself also resurrects. If you go to verse 14, when it's talking about the ministry of the false prophet and how he gets people to worship the beast and to worship an image of the beast that he made. He says, "...and deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live." So the beast himself is killed with a sword. So there's a specific meaning here as well. Antichrist is apparently assassinated with a sword. If you remember in Ezekiel 28, we always look at the last half of the chapters referring to the king of Tyre, Satan. But we talk about the first ten verses. That's the prince of Tyrus, who is Antichrist. And it says there that he will die the death of the uncircumcised by strangers. That implies that he must be Jewish. Why would it say you would die an uncircumcised death unless you were circumcised? But it says he will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers. The ultimate destruction of Antichrist, the Bible says, is without hand. He's destroyed by the brightness of Jesus' coming. So this must be a reference to something else. He's assassinated. He dies the death of an uncircumcised heathen when he's assassinated by a sword, by strangers. And as it were, he's wounded to death. Is this a complete assassination? Does he literally die and resurrect from the dead? Or is it a PR stunt? I'm not sure. But this event causes the world to worship the beast. And this event is the dividing line in the beast treatment of Israel. Post-resurrection is when he desecrates the temple and seeks to eradicate the sun-clothed woman. A resurrection of sorts. Now what does this coincide with in the tribulation? It coincides with the dragon's exile from heaven that we see in chapter 12. He's angry. He comes to the earth. He really is mad. Woe to those that dwell on the earth. It coincides with the fifth trumpet judgment. The fifth trumpet judgment uh, or um, infernal torment. That army of locust-like creatures. Who is it that is king over them? It's the angel that comes out of the bottomless pit. Who's the angel out of the bottomless pit? Well, we're told in Revelation 11 that it's the beast that tries to destroy and ultimately kills the two witnesses. So this resurrection coincides with the dragon being kicked out of heaven. It coincides with the fifth trumpet judgment. And it coincides with the, the, beast, the onset of the beast open war against the two witnesses when they have finished their testimony. So all of this is around the middle point of the tribulation. And the beast, it says, ascends out of the bottomless pit. 
Why does He ascend out of the bottomless pit? Because He's been killed and then He raises from the dead. But it's a pseudo-resurrection. He's raised from the dead to be cast alive into a lake of fire. There's two people in the history of the world that went straight to heaven without dying. Enoch and Elijah. There's two people that will go straight to the lake of hell. I mean, to the lake of fire without dying. Not to hell, to the lake of fire. The beast and the false prophet. So he's not like Christ who was raised in a glorified body to rule and reign forever, bearing the marks of his sacrifice. He's raised to go into perdition. So at best, it's a pseudo-resurrection. See, Satan can counterfeit, but he can't duplicate. It's a difference. Look at verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon which, were, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, and who is able to make war with him? The last form of world religion isn't ecumenism, it's not Roman Catholicism, it's Luciferianism. It's devil worship. Luciferian religion is the last form of world religion. Ecumenism, the Roman Catholic Church, churchianity, all of these world religions, these are stepping stones that usher in open devil worship. Open Luciferian religion. Sadly though, the hand that feeds churchianity, ecumenism, the Roman Catholic Church, it's going to be bitten off and devoured. Used. When evil props you up and uses you, when it's done with you, it devours you. That's exactly what will happen. We'll talk more about that in chapter 17. Is it any wonder that the last form of world religion on this planet would be devil worship? Luciferianism. Is it any wonder what used to be whispered in the shadows is proclaimed openly and even in our halls of government today? There are places where people are getting the rights to put uh, monuments or statues to Satan on government property in this country simply because the Ten Commandments are there. <laughs> we're at a place in this country, this country's been exalted to heaven, but we're in a place where there's no remedy. Wake up, there's, just, there's no remedy. It cannot be fixed. Quit kidding yourselves. May this country be thrust down to hell. That's my prayer. May it go straight to hell just like Capernaum. Because you've been exalted to heaven and if what had been preached here in your pulpits and on your streets had been declared in Sodom and Gomorrah, it would remain until this day. May this country which was exalted to heaven be cast to hell. Because it has rejected it's God, and it has come to a place where there is no remedy. I'm reminded of what is said about Israel in 2 Chronicles. Turn to the last chapter, 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. This is where we are as a nation. We should have learned from the example of Israel, but we have not. Chapter 36, verse 16. Just before Judah is carried off to Babylon, verses 15 and 16, and the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by His messengers, rising up betimes and sending because He had compassion on His people 
and on His dwelling place. But what did they do? They mocked the messengers of God. They despised His words. They misused His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people till there was no remedy, no cure. That's what we've done in this country. We have mocked God's messenger. We've despised the Bible that our founding fathers said was the rock upon which our republic rests. And we've misused the prophets of God recording His Word. And His wrath has arisen and there's no remedy. What I find interesting though is if you turn a couple chapters back, I preached on this last week down there in Creedmoor. Chapter 33. The most wicked king in the entire history of Israel. Ruled the longest of any of them. 55 years. Set up an altar to Baal in the temple. Put altars to false gods in the temple. Built the high places. Sacrificed children. Allowed all sorts of wickedness in the land. Tolerated the Sodomites. And then it says that the king of Babylon came and drug him through the thorns to teach him a lesson and carry him off to prison. Most wicked leader there ever was in Israel's history. And what happened in prison, he humbled himself. He repented. And he was put back in power. And then the proof that he was put back in power, this one who is said caused Jerusalem and Judah to do worse than the heathen that were in the land of Canaan before God overthrew them. It says the kings of Assyria, not, I'm sorry, not Babylon, drug him through the thorns as kind of a torture, carried him off to Babylon. When he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly. This was Manasseh the king. And then you go down, this is what happened when he got put back on the throne. This is how you know true repentance. He took away the strange gods, took the idol out of the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, and sacrificed thereupon peace offerings and thank offerings, and commanded the people to serve the Lord God of Israel. That's true repentance. The most wicked king of all. You see, by Manasseh's time, there was no remedy. But what did God do? He took a wicked ruler saved him and brought a temporary period of respite. God can still do that for us. There's no remedy for this country. But Manasseh's reign wasn't that far out from the carrying away to Babylon. At that point, there was no remedy, but God gave respite. What we need to pray for in this country is not a remedy, because there is no remedy. We need to pray for respite. Pray for relief. For revival. If God can change the heart of King Manasseh, then God can drag Obama through the thorns and humble him and cause him to command us to turn back to God. That's my prayer. He can do it. But it will only be short-lived because there is no remedy for this country. The beast is coming. But praise God that He can bring mercy in the midst of all this and still save people, even wicked leaders. So there is hope for respite and relief. But there's no remedy. Luciferianism will come. It will rule the world. I don't say I love my country anymore. I loved my country. Loved it, past tense. 
His worship, He's worshipped by the world as God. Sets Himself up as God. You know, you can set yourself up as God, but if you don't have anybody to worship you, it doesn't mean anything. The people worship Him because He's raised from the dead. Look at verses 5 and 6. This is His impudence, His arrogance. And there was given unto Him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto Him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. What arrogance, what impertinence, what audacity. But again, these things are given unto him. They're not sourced in him. They're given unto him insofar as God the sovereign judge allows. Remember in Revelation 6-2, the white horse rider, a crown... He didn't take a crown, it was given unto him. The word there is not the word from where we get diadem, the crown of authority. It's Stephanus, the crown of victory. The victory that Antichrist receives was given to him, was given to the white horse rider for God's purposes. The rod of my indignation, Isaiah 10. Power is only given to him absolute authority that Nebuchadnezzar kept many years that the Caesars carried for generations, will only be given to him for 42 months. Three and a half years following his pseudo-resurrection. Only 42 months, no more. See, God set the limit. Set the limit. Three and a half years. Not even the length of a presidential term in this country. Three and a half years to blaspheme and no more. These 42 months referred to here is the second half of Daniel's 70th week from the abomination of desolation until the coming of Messiah. It's what Jesus called the great tribulation. Now if you remember in chapter 11 that the two witnesses are given liberty to preach for 1,260 days, which is also three and a half years with 30-day months. As I said before, Antichrist has two 42-month segments in which he reigns. One with a more peaceful side, then as the beast. He's always the beast, but there's a dividing line which I believe is his pseudo-resurrection, the midpoint of the tribulation. The ministry of the two witnesses overlaps those. It starts in the first half, and they finish their testimony in the second half. I don't know what exactly the overlap is, but that's why the, their ministry is spoken of in terms of days Antichrist is spoken of in terms of What are his blasphemy, blasphemies? It says he blasphemes three things. His, God's name. This is seen in his sacking of Jerusalem. The Bible says God planted Jerusalem. He put his name there. And you can see even today how the Jews look at the geography of the city and the, the Hebrew letter there that stands for the name of God is evident. God's name is there. So he blasphemes God by sacking the city of Jerusalem. He blasphemes God with his mouth. He blasphemes God's tabernacle, the temple. Well, K-O-V-O, obvious. He goes into the temple that the Jews have rebuilt and he sets himself up as God there. He desecrates it, blasphemes it. And then what, who else does he blaspheme? Interesting here. Them that dwell in heaven. That's interesting. That word to dwell is the same Greek word we see in verse 12 of chapter 12. 
Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell unto them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he know that he has a short time. 42 months. This word means to encamp or to occupy like living in a mansion. Like house sitting almost. And when I think about what Jesus says in John 14, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe, you believe, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you that when I come again, I'll receive you unto myself. Jesus is using wedding imagery there. And we've talked about the Jewish wedding. And we've talked about how the rapture plays into that. Here, Antichrist is blaspheming those that dwell in heaven. Who are those that dwell in heaven at this moment? The church! The church that's been raptured out. And I'm sure that causes a whole lot of questions amongst the world population. Questions that political leaders are going to have to answer. It's a big topic for the rest of the time here on earth because this group of people has suddenly disappeared. And what does Antichrist do? He mocks them. Why? Who is in heaven at this time that would give him reason to blaspheme? It's the church, raptured out. Why? Because the church is that which restrained him via the Holy Spirit from being revealed for so many centuries. And he's got to give an explanation to people. Blasphemes them, makes, them, makes fun of them, mocks them. They're not here anymore. We've been rid of them. Here we have more biblical evidence of a pre-trib rapture. That document, that doctrine's not built upon chapter in 1 Thessalonians. It's not built upon the writings of, 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 of J.N. Darby. It's not based upon the dream of a blind girl, like so many people claim we dispensationalists think. It's based upon the scriptural evidence. And here we've got it again. Blaspheming them that dwell in heaven. The words used here show this is not a reference to the angelic host. They don't dwell in heaven. They're out doing God's ministry. They're ministers. Them that dwell in heaven are those that are at rest. The church. And they're blasphemed. His impudence. His blasphemy. If you look at your outline, his, then we have in verse 7 and 8 his power. Now I have a typo here. I've got 10, 7, and 8, and 10, 9, and 10, and point F. That's a mistake. It should be 13. Sorry about that. But verses 7 and 8 tell us his power. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations and all that dwell upon the earth. So we're differentiating here between those who dwell in heaven, those that dwell upon the earth. Okay, That contrast and comparison shows that we're talking about two groups of people. There's those dwelling on the earth and those dwelling in heaven. Those that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Again, it's emphasized here that what He does is given to Him. The rod of God's anger, the axe in God's hand. What is it given unto Him to do? To go after the tribulation saints. Who are the tribulation saints? It's those Gentiles that repent at the preaching of the Jewish witnesses. It's the fruit of those 144,000 witnesses. We saw that at the end of chapter 7. And He's given power to go after them. 
to make war with them and to overcome them. And you think, man, that's terrible. Is that really a bad thing? Look at chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 4. John says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the witness of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Slain by the beast, but reigning with Christ for a thousand years. These are the tribulation saints who would not worship Him. Just three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, they would not receive His mark, and they're beheaded for it. But they live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Is that a bad thing for the tribulation saints? No. Is it a bad thing for the world and for Antichrist? Yes, because there is divine retribution. Remember the fifth seal? The fifth seal wasn't a judgment per se. It was the martyrs that had been martyred. These tribulation saints standing before the throne saying, How long, O Lord, till your vengeance? That's a seal of judgment because it ensures retribution. Look at a couple of things that Revelation says and elsewhere when we think about the death of the righteous. Sometimes we look at the death of the righteous and we think, man, this is unfair. And we use it to get mad at God. Look at chapter 14, verse 13. Right after this, what does it say here? And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. This is around the same time, chronologically, that the beast goes after the tribulation saints. The Bible says, Blessed are they which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow Him. This is telling the believer, desire death. Welcome it. It's rest from your life. So yes, He's given power to go after the tribulation saints, but the tribulation saints are told to receive it. Welcome it. It's rest from your labors. There's a time coming when the believer is given permission to desire death. And welcome it. Christ said, Paul said to live is Christ, to die is gain. He sensed the responsibility to remain, to raise up the brethren and disciple them, but there's coming a time where that's not necessary anymore. Welcome it. Receive the rest. Death is never anything but a doorway for the saint. Look at Isaiah 57, 1 and 2. This is a good passage to share with those who are mourning the loss of a, a saint, a loved one, who's perished. Isaiah 57, 1 and 2, The righteous perisheth, and no man lay it to heart. Nobody considers. And merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. When we see the righteous perish, die, get sick and die, or tragically killed. We can rejoice that God's delivering them from these evil days. They've entered into rest. What an amazing thing. There's an example of this. Of all the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, none were righteous. There was one that was destined to be king. God saw righteousness in him. And because God saw righteousness in him, he, he suffered him to die. He killed him. 
wouldn't even let him grow up. He, he was the only one that went to the grave of the dynasty of Jeroboam. Turn to 1 Kings 14. When we talk about the death of the righteous, this gives us some perspective here. Jeroboam had a son named Abijam. Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom. God promised to give him a seed and a dynasty if he would cause the people to worship him. But he didn't want him going down to Jerusalem like God had commanded because he was afraid the ten tribes would go back to the son of David. So to solidify his kingdom, he built up the golden calves in Dan and Bethel and caused the people to go a-whoring after them, said, these are your gods. He raised up priests of the basest of people. And he is called he that made Israel to sin. The base of the altar that had the golden calf in Dan is still standing today. You can walk on it, stand upon it, look upon it. The ruins are there. But Jeroboam had a son, Abijam, who got sick. And so he had his wife disguise herself to go to the prophet to see if God would heal his son. And when she comes, the prophet immediately recognizes her. God reveals it and pronounces judgment upon the house of Jeroboam. But it's interesting what he says here in chapter 14, um, verse 13. Uh, he tells the woman, all of these things are going to happen to Jeroboam. I'm going to cut off his dynasty. I'm going to cut off everyone that pisses against a wall. King James language. That means every man is going to be cut off. You're not going to have a seed. Uh, I'll take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam just like a man takes away dung. Just like a man shovels up a pile of poop and carries it and dumps it somewhere. That's what God's going to do to Jeroboam. Him that dieth of Jeroboam in the city shall the dogs eat. Him that dies in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. For the Lord has spoken it. So get up. Get out of here. That's what He tells that woman. And when thy feet enter into that city, your child's going to die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave. Why? God says, because in him there is found some good thing toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. His son Abijam, a young man, young, maybe even a boy, had something good in his heart toward the Lord God. And he was the only one in the house of Jeroboam. So what did God do? Did He raise him up to be king so that he would turn away? No, He brought him to the grave. He went to rest and peace. God knows what He's doing. That's why Abijam died of that sickness. Because God saw something good into him. Just like Isaiah says here. That is the legacy of the tribulation saints. Antichrist is given power to go after them. He's given power in verse 7 to rule over all kingdoms. I mean all kindreds. All tongues. All nations. It says in chapter uh, um, 11 that these same kindreds, tongues, and nations... Uh, let's see... I'm just really getting dyslexic here. I'm writing these things down and they're just backwards. Um, uh, it says in, in chapter 11 that kindreds, tongues, and nations, the same ones that Antichrist have power over, they're going to look at these dead bodies of these two witnesses in the streets and they're going to rejoice and give gifts to one another. He's given power to rule over these kindred's tongues and nations. These same kindred tongues and nations are warned by God 
Verse 6 of chapter 14, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of the heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. Worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. These kindreds that are given power are warned, but they don't listen. It's funny, this terminology here, kindreds, tongues, and nations, is also used elsewhere in Revelation of the righteous. You know, Antichrist is given power over the peoples of the earth, but in Revelation chapter 5, when we have that worship service in heaven, they sung a new song, verse 9, saying, Thou art worthy to open the book and to open the seals, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood, by thy blood out of what? Every kindred, every tongue, every people, every nation. So all kindreds, tongues, and peoples of this earth may worship the beast, but God's got a remnant pulled from every one of those tribes, tongues, and nations. Revelation 7 the tribulation saints, which are the fruit of the preaching of the Jewish witnesses. It says in verse 9, And I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb of God with white robes and palms in their hands. So all nations are, are under the thumb of Antichrist, but out of all nations God pulls a remnant. He has that remnant today in the church that will be raptured and He'll have that remnant in the tribulation saints. And it's that remnant, maybe small compared number-wise, but representative of all kindreds, tongues, tribes, and nations that will populate His kingdom. Verse 8, it says, chapter 13, I'm almost done. Give me a little patience here. Verse 8, says that those that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him. All these hundreds, tongues, and nations over whom He rules will worship Him gladly. Them that dwell upon the earth versus them that dwell in heaven. Those that are left behind versus those that are raptured. If you reject the Gospel, if you've heard the Gospel clearly, 2 Thessalonians 2, if you reject it, if you sit in church every Sunday with a hard heart, and Christ raptures His church and you're left behind, you will worship the beast. You will receive His mark. You are appointed to damnation. You are appointed to the day of destruction. And there's nothing you can do about it. Period. If you don't like that, that's not your God, then I'm sorry God's an idol because this is what God's Word reveals here. God reserves the wicked to the day of destruction. It says that in the book of Job. It says in Jude that false teachers are appointed, reserved to the blackness of darkness forever. What does Paul say in Romans 9 about Pharaoh? God raised him up to destroy him, to show his glory to the people of Israel. God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. He hardens the hearts of whomever he wants to harden. If you don't like that, I'm sorry. I'm just telling you what God says. You can do with it what you want. If you reject the gospel, if you're left behind, I'm not talking about those who've never clearly heard the gospel. That's where the tribulation saints will be reaped. But there are people that have heard the gospel clearly in some of these churches and they've rejected it. 
There are people, I've gone back and listened to some of these old messages as I'm preparing to do some teaching this summer. And there were people in the audience that read the scriptures that day that aren't among us anymore. They've got no excuse. They heard the truth. No excuse. And they've left and gone. I'm not saying they're not saved. But they've got no excuse because they heard the truth. You're left behind and you've heard the truth. You will worship the beast. That's what it says here. Romans chapter 9, let me just read this. This is a chapter that people hate. They hate it. They hate Paul. They hate what he says about God. Verse 18, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardens. Thou wilt then say unto me, Why did he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but O man, who are you to reply against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed him, Why have you made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? There are vessels, my friends, that have been appointed to destruction and there's nothing that can be done about it. Why? That He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of His mercy which He had before prepared unto glory. Even us whom He has called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. fact is, we don't know who's appointed to destruction and who is not. We don't know who God has elected to salvation and who is not. We're told to preach the gospel. That part's up to Him. But we can use those great truths to find comfort and to warn the wicked. My advice to someone who's rejected in the gospel, I can only give them one option. It's the same thing the angel does when he flies through heaven in chapter 14. Worship God and give glory to Him because His judgment's coming. Humble yourself. The Bible does say God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Those words are true. Humble yourself. But if you reject it and you're left behind and you've rejected the clear gospel, you will worship the beast. And when you receive His mark, there is no remedy. I know some of these stories like the Left Behind series and some of these books written about the tribulation imply that you can get the mark and then you can you know, feel sorry and remorseful, but, and then you can get saved anyway. Well, that's not what the Scripture says. If you receive the mark, you're finished. It's over. You're done. Now, there's reference here in Revelation made to the um, book of life. These people that worship the beast, it says um, that uh, their names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb. They're not written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, there is reference to the Lamb's book of life in the Scriptures and we also have reference to the book of life. We talked about this a little bit back in the message to the church at Sardis. The Bible says that to him that overcomes, I will not blot his name out of the book of life. And we talked a little bit about the book of life versus the Lamb's book of life. We're going to discuss this more in chapter 17 because there are those referred to whose names from the foundation of the world were never written in the book of life, even though they've lived. So we're going to address that. I don't want to get into it more. It's kind of interesting what is said here. But the Lamb, it says in, here in verse um, 8, was slain when? Not A.D. 30. 
from the foundation of the world. These things were appointed. That terminology from the foundation of the world, we learn a lot in the Scriptures. The Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 17 verse 8 says there are peoples whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Christ was loved by the Father before the foundation of the world. John 17. The saints were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 But the millennial kingdom is prepared for the saints from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25.34 The sacrifice of Christ, a lamb without blemish and spot, was foreordained before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1 verse 20 None of this takes God by surprise. None of this was a knee-jerk or last-minute decision. It was all ordained from the foundation of the world. Even the rise and fall of the beast. You don't like this? Who were you to say to the one that made you, why have you made me thus? That's a simple response. Somebody wants to complain about God and God made me this way, you know, it's not my fault, or, you know, how can we blame God, you know, whatever, whatever. Who are you to answer to the one who made you? Can the pot say to the potter, why have you made me thus? That's the best response. That's what Paul responds. You have one option. You don't like this about God. You don't like the fact that these things have been ordained from the foundation of the world. You've got one option. It's what the angel shouts with a loud voice. Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of judgment is coming. Worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea. That's your only option. This brings us to the last two verses. I'm sorry, I'm running a little bit late. Uh, indulge me for just a moment. We're almost done. We've talked about the attributes of Antichrist, verses 1 and 2, His pseudo-resurrection, verse 3, His worship, verse 4, His impudence and arrogance, verses 5 and 6. His power given to Him in the 7 and 8. What's the moral of the story? It says in Revelation that these things, blessed is he that reads and understands this book. That means even us in this dispensation who are born again and won't be here for this time. There's a reason we read this. There's a moral of the story. What is the moral of Antichrist? The lesson to be learned. I mean, verse 9 says, If any man have an ear, let him hear. So this obviously has a personal application. Even to us, the church, who will be dwelling in heaven at the time these events transpire. What's the moral? Well, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, very clear. We are admonished and exhorted to hear, read, and study this book. Even those of us who are appointed from the foundation of the world to escape these things. Blessed is he that hears and reads this book. All throughout the messages to the churches, he that has an ear, let him hear. Right here in verse 9, if you have an ear, hear. What's the lesson? What's the lesson to be learned? Very simple. There's a payday someday. This takes us right back to where we started this morning. Isaiah 10 verse 5. O Assyrian, the rod of my anger. There's a payday someday, and Antichrist is part of it. That's the lesson to be learned. Weeps in the beastly origin of man. A beast will rule over us and lead us into destruction. That's the lesson. 
God gives you what you want. We as a society have pronounced our own judgment upon ourselves. We claim we came from beasts. Beasts are going to rule over us. There's a payday someday. This is what I call the principle of divine karma. We talk about this a little bit in martial arts, how we should conduct ourselves. Jesus communicated it to Peter when he pulled out that sword and cut off this high servant's ear. He was quick to use the sword. Jesus said, he that is quick to use the sword will die by the sword. That's divine karma. Now, Buddhism and Eastern mysticism talks about karma. See, there's a difference between divine karma and worldly karma. Worldly karma, you reap what you sow by chance, just by chance. Divine karma, you reap what you sow by divine decree. It's the principle of reaping and sowing. That's the moral of Antichrist. The world reaps what it has sown. Israel reaps what it has sown. That's the lesson. You reap what you sow. Let's look at a couple of verses here real quick. I'm going to give my voice a break. Three verses real quick. Paul, if you look up Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Brother Gene, Matthew 26, 52. And Tony, I'll let you look up Job 4, verse 8. Just a quick comment here. I'm almost done. I'm, I'm still not going to break Matthew's record. Trust me. It's a great place to stop. When you have that, go ahead. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. God's not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he reap. If it doesn't seem to be reaped in this life, it will be reaped in the life to come. That is divine karma. Matthew 26, 52. Then Jesus said unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Amen. If you're quick to aggression and violence, violence and aggression will be quick to you. That's what I teach my students. You know, if you're quick to fight, you're going to be the recipient of that same thing. You raise a sword, you'll die by the sword. Don't be quick to use it. Don't be quick to use what you've learned. Because else will be quick to use what they've learned. That's what Jesus told Peter, divine karma. Job 4 verse 8. They that plow the iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. And my friends, once again, the Scriptures are consistent. This is the moral of the heritage of Antichrist. Look at verse 10. Is this any different than what we just read? He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. That's the lesson. Verse 9, he that has an ear, let him hear. What is God teaching us by revealing these things to us? The principle of reaping and sowing. He that leads into captivity will go into captivity. Antichrist leads into captivity. He's thrown captive into a lake of fire. He that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. The principle of divine retribution. Divine vigilance. Vengeance. Divine karma. But here's another difference between what 
The New Age talks about in karma. Karma happens by chance in New Age philosophy. Divine karma is by divine decree. Worldly karma is equal. What you sow, reap something equally. Divine karma is worse than worldly karma. You don't just reap what you sow. You reap worse than what you sow. What's the scriptural proof? Hosea. Hosea chapter 8. I'm just making sure we cover all books of the Bible. I know we have, but I'm a double take here. Hosea chapter 8. What does God say to Israel? Again, reference to reaping and sowing. They have sown the wind. They shall reap the wind? No. Weep the whirlwind. You, you sow wind, you don't reap wind, you reap a whirlwind. In divine karma, what you reap is far worse than what you've sown. It's of the same that you've sown of the same nature, but it's worse. Leads to ultimate destruction. That's the principle. But it doesn't end there. That principle is obvious. But here in verse 10, we're told something about it. We're told that divine karma, that retribution, that vengeance is something more than just truth. Here, and this is going to fly in the face of modern day churchianity, here is the patience and faith of the saints. What is our patience and faith? All this wickedness we see will be repaid. All this wickedness that has been sown will be reaped. This is cause for joy us. This is cause for joy. This is the patience and faith of the saints. The destruction of the wicked is one day going to be cause for rejoicing and applause. Psalm 58, 10 and 11. I'll read real quick. Again, Scripture confirming Scripture. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. So that a man shall say, Verily there is a reward for the righteous. Verily he is a God that judges in the earth. You know, I want people to get saved. I want abortion doctors to repent and get saved. While there's still hope, we pray, we preach, we weep. But there's coming a day when the destruction of the wicked means that we will rejoice. The righteous will applaud. Remember the martyrs at the fifth seal? Saying, how long, O Lord? When are you going to repay them for what they've done to us? And God says, wait. Just give it a little while. We need to let the number come to the full. Then it'll happen. This is where it happens. How long, O Lord? A divine judgment that brings harsh retribution to the wicked is joy to the righteous. I think of Psalm 126 verse 5, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. All this wickedness out here, it'll be repaid. It's not our job to repay it. It's God's job. Woe unto those that take God's job or God's vengeance into their own hands. You're going to reap it. You know, woe unto those wicked people that go out here and murder abortion doctors. Woe unto them. That same violence will be visited upon your own head. Upon your own pate, it says there in the Psalms. But God's vengeance is final. It's done in righteousness. And that's cause for rejoicing. I know that's harsh language used there in the Psalms. But uh, 
I didn't say it. God did. So that brings me back to where I started. We looked at Isaiah 10. We looked at the rise of Antichrist as a judgment. We talked about how he will deceive many, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2. He'll deceive many. So the question is, will the rise of Antichrist be judgment upon you? Will you be deceived? Will you come under strong delusion? Will you believe the lie? Will you be damned with the rest? That's the question. Turn back to 2 Thessalonians because there's three tests that we can apply to ourselves to know whether or not we're protected from the delusion. How do we protect ourselves from the delusion? There's three tests. I just want to ask you three questions. From 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says in verse 10, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, we read this earlier, in them that perish. Why? Because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they may all be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Three questions. Have you believed the truth? Have you believed the truth? Number two. Do you take pleasure in unrighteousness? Number three, have you received the love of the truth? You see, the delusion comes to those who've not believed the truth, who boast and take pleasure in unrighteousness, and who have not received the love of the truth. That's who is delusioned. That's who's deceived. That's who's damned. But if you believe the truth, if you hate sin... Even when you're guilty of it, you don't make excuse for it, you know it's wrong, you repent and you acknowledge it for what it is. And if you love the truth, in other words, the Bible to you is not a scavenger hunt to find an excuse for what you're doing. It's a search for truth and a willingness to change when you find it. If you meet these tests, then you've protected yourself. You've armed yourself against this delusion. You won't be deceived. In fact... If this is you, and when, when it says the love of the truth, here's the interesting thing. That word love there is the word agape. It's unconditional. The protected ones are those that love the truth unconditionally. Not because it makes them feel good. Not because it's what the world says. But because it's the truth. It's God's Word and that settles it. Those that are protected from the delusion. Those that love the truth. doesn't matter if the whole world says it's okay to be homosexual. You love what God's Word says. They say, the whole world is against me. My response is not, well, maybe I'm reading something wrong. My response is, well, I guess the whole, I'm against the whole world. The whole world is against me. If I love the truth, then I'm against the whole world. That's what Antipas, God's faithful martyr at the church at Pergamos, said. He said, Antipas, the whole world is against you. I guess I'm against the whole world. And then they threw him in a great iron bowl, roasted him to death. Do you love the truth unconditionally despite society? I don't care what society says. Do you love the truth? It comes to what God says about homosexuality, what He says about greed, what He says about uh, worshiping Him, what He says about being the only way. Unconditionally, regardless of what the world says, do you, have you received the truth? Have you received that love? Have you believed it? Do you take pleasure in unrighteousness? If you sin, and you know God's Word says it is sin, but you love it, and you make excuses for it, you're opening yourself up to deception. 
But if you pass these tests, my friends, then you're protected from that delusion. In fact, it's written of you in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 12. If you love the truth, if you believe the truth, if you don't take pleasure in unrighteousness, what does Paul say in verse 13? We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning, from the beginning of time, chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto He called you by our gospel, the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or by epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God, even our Father, which has loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts. Establish you good word and work. That's the promise, my friend. When Satan tempts you or causes you to doubt or causes you to fear and to forget about your salvation and what God's done in your life, just ask yourself these questions. You know the answer. If you pass the test, you're protected. You've been chosen by God from the foundation of the world. You're one of His. But there are many who don't pass the test, who claim the name of Christ. They won't even look at this. They wouldn't even ask the question because they're so blind. Why did we study the Antichrist? Why did we spend so much time upon Him? To exercise our senses and equip ourselves to discern the spirit of Antichrist so prevalent in the world and the church today preparing His way. God allows this to test us. Can we discern it if we take no pleasure in unrighteousness, if we believe the truth, receive the truth, if we believe, or I mean, if we believe the truth, if we receive the love of the truth, we can discern the spirit of Antichrist and we can be protected from it. Thus ends our discussion on the beast out of the sea. When I return, Lord willing, in August, we'll look at the beast out of the earth. Satan's commander-in-chief is the Antichrist. His minister of propaganda is the false prophet. Satan had a commander-in-chief in Nazi Germany. It was Adolf Hitler. He had a minister of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels. Wicked man. Wicked man. See, it wasn't just Hitler. We always talk about Hitler. But there would be no Hitler if there wasn't wicked, wicked, wicked people that put him where he was. So make no mistake. Does anybody have any questions? I'm sorry, I still did not run till 1 o'clock. But this is a great stopping point. I thank you for indulging me. Some of this I'm going to be teaching this summer, particularly the messages to the seven churches. I think those are appropriate for us in this day and time. But praise God for His salvation. Praise God for saving uh, a wretch like me. Um, I deserve to have uh, the righteous wash their feet in my blood. I know my heart, but God saved me. Praise God that in Him the sin I once loved, I now hate. And when I fall into it, I don't make excuses for it. I repent and run to the Word of God. That's the heritage of God's children.